Two years after the end of World War II, a Japanese soldier recently released from a POW camp in mainland China would wind his way home across a war-torn Japan. His train would briefly stop amidst the embers of Hiroshima before taking him home to the massively firebombed ruins of the great city of Tokyo. The war had ended, but for many years after, these images would be impossible to erase as they were larger than life. It was destruction on a monstrous, unfathomable scale. This is Kaiju versus History, and this week is Shiro Honda's 1954 masterpiece, Godzilla. Welcome back, everybody, to Kaiju versus History. My name is Miles, and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Patrick. So, this is the epicenter of everything we have done and will be doing go- going forward. 1954's Godzilla. It's it's interesting to sometimes have such a focal point, uh, being you know both massive fans of nerd pop culture stuff and being into comics and and you know fantasy and science fiction and horror it's always interesting because some some of these things don't always have a specific focal point of like mm-hmm. this started here whereas in 1954's Godzilla it starts kaiju cinema i mean it's 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 generally agreed upon as the first kaiju film as we know them and yeah. so it's it's a treat to to finally get to I would say the we are no longer in the pre-K era. We are we are finally <laughs> in the the kaiju era. And I do want to reiterate something because you know our, our prior episodes have been longer as we're as we're getting towards Godzilla, and this one will probably be of a similar length. Um Patrick and I are very much wanting to get other people excited about kaiju movies. And we're doing that through watching them chronologically and talking about the history. However, we are not the definitive history of these things. We're just wanting to get people excited so that they dive in. So we are not going to be the definitive source of everything here on out. I mean, there there are podcasts out there. If you want to go deeper, there are great YouTube channels dedicated to Godzilla, dedicated to the film's that you can dive in more. We could talk about just 1954's Godzilla for probably 10 or 12 hours. Oh, you know? oh. and I want to, I want to take the time to plug something, not of my own, but in 2017, there was a beautiful, beautiful biography about Ishiro Honda uh, written by Steve uh, uh, Rifle and uh, Ed Gedzieski. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love his last name. It's so close to Godzilla. <laughs> Yeah, but God, this God's do whiskey, right? Something like that. Um, this book is I'm, I'm holding it right now, I guess, just for Patrick's sake. Yeah, it's, it's so painstakingly researched and lovingly written mm-hmm. about someone who is more than just a creator of, of, of kaiju films and monster movies. It's it's someone who absolutely loved the 
art form of cinema. And this book paints that beautifully. And I highly recommend if you have any interest in this subject, and if you're listening to this show, you probably do. I highly recommend Shira Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa. This book is likely going to be a textbook in some college course at some point in time. And I'm, oh, man. I, I say that with, with no hint of irony. This I, book is a masterpiece. I hope so, because I feel like, and we're hopefully going to shed some light on, on the director of this movie. I feel like he's been mostly forgotten about because... Or at least completely he's, overlooked for his contributions to film. Yeah, well, and he's also standing in the shadow of his creation of of Godzilla, you know, uh, which has obviously, uh, I mean, unfortunately, Shiro Honda passed away in the 90s. But, I mean, the movies have outlived everyone that's probably worked on that 1954 film. And and you, can, you can't wish for anything else, like to have something that lives past you. I think Honda has a specific personality in the movies that he directs. And, and sometimes the, the, those movies aren't always the best. Um, there, there is a Godzilla film that is not a favorite amongst fans that but he did do. The, the history of Kaiju, the reason for this podcast, is also a history of a Shiro Honda. Um, good or bad, we're going to be going through a lot of his film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he essentially, I, I love that he came back to this series several times in the Showa era. I yeah. think that that is wonderful. Um, he didn't, he didn't end the Showa era. Well, no, he didn't. You know, he did tear him yeah. Godzilla. He started so it he, and ended. Yeah. He starts and ended. I, I was thinking of, um, <laughs> I was thinking of uh, Godzilla versus, versus Godzilla, which is uh, June Fukuda or Fukuda. Um, right, right. He didn't do both of them, but he did do yeah, Megalon he, and some others. Oh no, he, he, he does several. But very yeah, important he, ones. he bookends this this entire era, which I think is fitting. And he's a filmmaker, and we're we're going to talk about this. I mean, we have. I, I feel like if you're a fan of kaiju, even if you're one of those guys, like, well, I like Godzilla, but what I really like is whatever. I I, I think you every single fan of this genre owes this film a debt of gratitude, and you don't have to love it. I personally think it's kind of crazy if you don't, but you don't have to. That's that's what film's all all about. But I, I know that we have also been a little spoilerific in how much the two of us love this movie. So we're we're, we're gonna go ahead and and try to to be objective until it gets to to our discussion of the movie. But I will say I think I'm I'm a little more harsh on my my final review of this film than I would have been say five years ago the you know one of the first times I saw the original Japanese cut of the movie um because going and into if you that, want to listen to that for for Patrick listening to the first <laughs> Japanese cut you can do that because I I basically curated a Godzilla month on our our pod well Patrick's former podcast but my still podcast <laughs> the more you nerd yes we did an entire month of Godzilla films and so you good. can listen to their their reactions to to what we did. But my and reaction to that the, that first time that I saw that was based on my previous viewing of the film which we will do in a uh, a further episode which is 1956's Godzilla King of the Monsters the American adaptation um re-envisioning of Ashira Honda's classic 
cannibalization, I would call it. Cannibalization. Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, is there a term for like what Power Rangers did, which is like take the original footage? I think, and, like, I think I, honestly, I'm, I'm uh, outside of humor. I think it is kind of uh, cannibalization. I think that, I think that's what they call it. I, well, I, it's I, so weird because it's taking elements of another piece of art and it's bringing on a new piece of art. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember if there is, there probably is a better term and I'm yeah. sure someone's going to tell us what the term is. Oh, please um, email us. Yeah. About that. Yeah. But uh, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I, like I said, we'll get to the rating at the end of the episode. I'm a little harsher than I think I would have been, but I'm not that being said. <laughs> yeah. As we've, we've mentioned here, the intro to this week's episode is about a Shiro Honda. Um, and you can read about it in the book um, that, that we were just talking about. And some of the uncertainty he was facing at that time, coming home two years after the end of the war from the the POW camp, he didn't know if anyone he knew in Tokyo was still alive. Because obviously, you probably heard Tokyo was destroyed. It was almost leveled by the firebombing. It's so haunting to hear, to to read about those perspectives because like his family had to stay behind in case he did come home. They were waiting two years uh, for him to come. So, and this is why I said what I said last week is these, these two monster movies, them and Godzilla are written from two extraordinarily different perspectives. Yeah. And it's it's hard for the Americans, I think to fathom that kind of horror. Right. Um, and it's very easy for a Shiro Honda to kind of share just a sliver of what he saw and went through. Um, and if you want a comical version of, of the creation of this movie, uh, you can watch an episode of Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> Legends because, of Tomorrow go back in time? <laughs> yes, they Yes, they do. It is very much, it was dealing with the idea that at one point in time, Godzilla was supposed to be a, a giant octopus. Yes, yeah, that's and fascinating so, well, factoid. <laughs> the 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 reason is because he encounters the legends, and they tell him, "Hey, lizards are king." <laughs> <laughs> um, it it is um the episode uh, uh Tagumo attacks from the fourth season of Legends of Tomorrow, <laughs> and it is uh, it's a very fun show. It is a show that found found its voice after the second season, and yeah. kind of came this wacky American Doctor Who kind of show, and it, it's fun that they, they go to see George Lucas, they <laughs> all sorts of things. It's a very, very fun show. So getting a more comical look at it, that was also respectful was a lot of mm-hmm. fun. And I think something that Honda would have appreciated because he did have a, a very unique sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. It, it comes out of course, in a little, some of his later films a little bit more for sure. This one, you know, they wanted a, a serious monster movie because 1933's King Kong had been re-released in 1953 in Japan, across the world, really. It's like the second or third time it was re-released internationally and made millions in this real release. And Toho saw that and was like, I want some of that money. The year before, obviously, uh, we did a review of The Beast of 20,000 Fathoms, which was extremely popular. And while that movie, I don't think, had come to Japan, obviously Toho is following things that are happening in Hollywood. And you see those box office numbers and they want their own. They want their own um, monster and would just so happen to make a 
creature, a film and experience that coalesces everything that's been forming in, in the 21 years since King Kong and also would somehow be more important, um, maybe more salient than things that would come after it. <laughs> you know, it's it's um, at least in ticket sales. No other Godzilla film, I think, would beat it in ticket sales in the entire Showa era. Um, so that's what Toho, Toho started project development plan G. Uh, Kehatsu Kekaku G. G standing for giant. Um, though maybe that's where Godzilla came from. <laughs> There's a, a story that they did a like internal Toho kind of competition to like name the monster. And Gojira is, is the name that they went with which is a mix of the Japanese kanji for whale and gorilla. Uh, so a little bit of King Kong DNA in there. Uh, the original screenplay or treatment for the film uh, by producer uh, Tamayuki Tanaka was originally called the giant monster from 20,000 leagues under the sea, which obviously is an indicator of what kind of movie they want to make. They want to make a giant monster movie. Um, Japan is a nation of surrounded by ocean and it, it's kind of setting up what they were, were going for. They knew that they needed something to kind of rival the effects that that film did, which obviously all the press they probably read about 20,000 uh, fathoms is about Ray Harryhausen stop motion. Uh, so they, they tapped in to hiring special effects director, uh, AG Subaraya and, and I think they made the right choice in how they did things. I mm -hmm. don't know how, well, let me rephrase this. It's not that it couldn't have been done. I'm sure it would have been. I don't know how effective it would have been if Godzilla had been stop motion. Uh, I mean, with what they were going for, they knew early on they couldn't get the same effects right. done in the same amount of time because, I mean, Ray Harryhausen must have been some kind of genius because... Like we said in, in our yeah, review, he, he was, was he was working by himself sometimes, you know, days at a time without a break. But I, but I will say it's one thing, and this is going to sound like I'm I'm talking smack about the apes again, but it's one thing <laughs> to do a, a a giant monkey that can move around a little bit. I think it's another to do a creature like Gojira. Mm -hmm. Well, the beast walking on all fours and with all the movement that it has was wonderfully realized in, in stop motion animation. I personally am not a huge fan of stop motion. I mean, but that's only because everyone else besides Ray Harryhausen that's that's attempted it is has fallen flat compared to mm. what he's able to well in this time period. Yeah, oh yeah, in the 50s and yeah. 60s especially. Don't but. don't be talking smack about Leica, sir. <laughs> I will say, you know, modern stop motion, I mean, it might as well be digital animation. It's so amazing. But yeah, back then they did not have the the technology. I've I've seen a Leica today. set and it's it's insane how it's, detailed it is. Those I mean when they do the um you know, behind the scenes showing the animators oh, going and moving everything. It's, 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 it's amazing. Wild. They have like <laughs> hundreds of faces for one emotion. Um, this film released in uh, Nagoya, Japan is kind of a pre-release. They showed the cast and crew, the film first. And even then they were con congratulating Ashira Honda. Um, but it released 
countrywide, primarily in Tokyo, where the film is set, October 27th, 1954. Oh, that was the original release, and then November 3rd for Tokyo and beyond. But, Patrick. Yeah, it was released as Gojira, just plain Gojira is the yes. title. Uh, and I, I I remember the first time I, I discovered that because I remember it's still internet age, but I remember the first Gojira DVD came out with the actual original title on it. Yeah. And I was very, very confused. And, and, you know, after doing a little more reading, I'm, Oh, that's the actual name. Um, but yeah, well that, so that's the, the Hepburn um, uh, version of the, the Japanese kanji is uh, uh, G O J I R A. Um, which, uh, like we said, uh, is ape and whale, the, those kind of words smashed together. But I, I, I do want to know what's in a name. Yeah. So the, one of the, <laughs> one of the reasons I'm putting these in the episodes is because it is a fascinating look at how these movies go from, uh, domestic releases to international phenomenon. And in particular, Godzilla is extremely interesting in the fact that it started as Gojira and the Americans, uh, we'll, we're going to talk about King of the Monsters, uh, but it comes out in the United States and Gojira doesn't, um, I mean, obviously it sounds like a Japanese name because it is, uh, they further took it a step away and turned it into Godzilla, which is kind of how it sounds, I think, to the American ear. Gojira, Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you don't have to be <laughs> a rocket scientist like make that leap but also it has the word god in it and it has um zilla which i mean we'll, we'll talk about it i'm sure in future episodes as well is now just a, a suffix <laughs> you know by itself mm -hmm. for something monstrous like so much of the uh the monsters is coming from that american title and it is now, I mean, the, the creature is now known as Godzilla in Japan, too, which is which is wild. But, I mean, it had names all over the world uh, for this first film, uh, which I found very interesting. Tai Taiwan, it was released as Atomic Dinosaur, which is pretty accurate. Uh, I, spot on. <laughs> kind of similar to Beats from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, Spain's title is Japan under the terror of the monster. I don't know if it means like under the sea I, or I, I kind of I dig that title. Uh, and Portugal is called the monster of the Pacific ocean. Also fairly accurate. <laughs> uh, and some of these is important to note that they're happening years later. Uh, right. When it, when it got an international release. Well, so I, Godzilla King of the monsters, also the name in Iceland and, um, Godzilla Sea Monster in Yugoslavia. Those are probably the, the I mean, it's very possible. Those it's are the, the after American, effects of being released in America. Yeah. Well, those might be the American versions as well going to these, these places. Um, so that, that is something that I do want to talk about just a smidge is, and we're going to really talk about this more in how the film was received, but there, there's this concept in a lot of stuff of being big in America. Like if you can, the cliche is if you can make it here, you can make it everywhere, anywhere. Because a lot of artists that are large in their country or even their continent will then tour in America. And if they succeed there, it's it's considered a bigger success, which is why, you know, even like with K-pop, which was a global phenomenon, the fact that like someone like BTS and Blackpink are topping the Billboard charts here means more yeah. than any of their accolades. And 
in a similar fashion, I think Godzilla, much like in, in the later years when you get Power Rangers, the the name that it got when it was fervently received is, I think, the international name that stuck with it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with Power Rangers, it's the same thing. So much of it is because, I mean, I don't think we're we're tastemakers necessarily here in the United States, but we have no, I'm not, I'm not Hollywood sure what it is. We have Hollywood, which just blows everything up to a greater degree and has, you know, the the capability of extending a film's life. Um, I mean, like I said, King Kong was released like four times and it's yeah, because and they they have the capability of, of pushing those movies out. Um, I think there's been that that perspective that like for whatever reason, like I also think it's because our country consumes pop culture monstrously more so than uh, that at the time a lot of people other people were i think it's a little more even now but i still think that kind of holds true is that mm-hmm. we could probably consume more media and so if you're big here you're making better more money you know yeah yeah i mean it's it's a it's a big market and then you know uh like like you said if you can make it here then further international releases are possible um and for good or for uh, for better or for worse in that respect, because there are so many Godzilla movies that did not get an American release, and it's pretty criminal that they didn't, especially in the Millennium series. Well, um, at least theatrical releases, yeah. Yeah, theatrical releases. Well, they, also, they all got DVD releases at the time. Also DVD um, for some of the earlier films as, as well. It, um, it took some time. Uh, every single Godzilla film has had a DVD release. Yes. And I uh, don't know if I can say the same about Blu-ray, but I'm almost positive. That's While we're true. recording this, though, 2021, not all of them are in print currently, which is correct. Um, baffling. <laughs> it, it is. It is wild because Criterion just put out this gorgeous, gorgeous set of the entire <laughs> Showa era. Uh, which my wonderful girlfriend bought me for Christmas uh, the year it came out. Yeah. Um, but to, to, to get back, I, this is such a tough movie to talk about. It's, I, as much as I've been, I've been looking forward to this episode, I've been dreading it because it's such a cultural milestone in general that I, I am going to inevitably feel like, oh, we're going to leave something out. But let's <laughs> let's dial it back a little bit and let's talk a little bit about some of the, the limited historical context so right so we, we talked about it i think with be some 20,000 fathoms 1953 um in 1954 around the time that them came out the united states tested their first h-bomb hydrogen bomb uh castle bravo at the bikini atoll in the marshall islands and pacific japan was not warned like the the government the people not warned there's a fishing boat called the uh, Daigo uh, uh, Fukuru Maru, the Lucky Dragon, number five. And it sailed nearby. It's It swam in those waters. And the fallout resulted in the death of the ship's radio man. I think everyone on the ship eventually died of radiation poisoning. And the fish caught around that time in Japan for the next few months was also contaminated. <sighs> Important note going forward for this movie and the next but it was a severe downfall for the fishing industry in japan and the production for godzilla had already started at this point march of 1954 it's but, it's just wild 
that this this sort of stuff happened, especially on other people's soil. I, I'm not going to try to get too much into the geopolitics of everything, but like it that 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 just blows my mind that this this thing could happen. Well, I mean, it's it's international waters. I don't think anyone technically owns the 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 bikini atoll, but uh, I mean, it's I mean they're doing testing all over over all over the. Pacific. I know it's it was, just. It was, it's just it was it's like it was our our backyard, and it's like, well, you know, what's the problem? But yeah, how how you don't? Um, I mean, I understand it was it was top secret kind of testing at the time, but it just seems like just seems extremely irresponsible. And yeah, there's I agree. A, <laughs> a lot of political things happening in Japan with the United States at that time. Um, the occupation only ended three years earlier, I believe. And only a couple of years earlier were restrictions relaxed on particularly the film industry for what they could and could not depict, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit, but the yes. United States had entered into a treaty with Japan where technically United States could uh, defend Japan as you know if they were attacked say by by Russia or China but they didn't have to part of this treaty was it was optional yeah so, I, then, uh, I yeah then I it's my mistake for like bringing up some of the politics of this because I don't want to get too deep into it because I'm just like I just feel so embarrassed as a citizen but it's just I mean to to be fair Japan was a a, a horrific uh you know boogeyman of the entire pacific for all of world war ii i i i understand and that, the, that world war ii is, is it was extremely complicated on all all fronts but it's the uh, everything about that era is is and mm-hmm. and that war is, is monstrous to me um well and the fact that the a-bomb the atomic weaponry was at the center of from the end of the war onward all politics everything that happened um, between these countries kind of focused around the idea of at any time a country could be absolutely obliterated. Yeah. Um, the, the weapons, including this, this test at Castle Bravo, were getting stronger and stronger every single year. And I mean, people's uh, ability to handle this information did not keep up with the technology, which is why we get to see films like this trying to grapple with the idea of destruction on that scale. And yeah, one of the reasons that Shiro Hondo is perfect to potentially bring it to light. And so the wild thing, I think that I learned as I was, as I'm continuing to read this, this um, biography Mm -hmm. is that he was not the first choice as director. And there are some reports that several people looked at the script and did not want to do such a, an out there concept as a film. And especially something so technical that hadn't really been attempted before no. in that who, scale in Japanese cinema. Who would want to take this on? I mean, there were movies before this that had special effects, including things Super Aya worked on, like war movies and things like that. But so many of the shots required for this film you know, were going to be special effects. In in looking up stuff for the background for this episode, I was trying to find you know, any definitive science fiction films from Japan before this movie. And I mean, there are a couple serials that I found, but I didn't find a lot of science fiction in Japanese cinema. And 
And which is interesting to me because a lot of the reviews is we'll, we'll get to react in a specific way because it was a science fiction movie. And I, I found that extremely fascinating. Yeah. So what, one of like, the themes we're going to talk about forever on this podcast is tradition versus technology and 1954, another seminal Japanese film is released by Ashira Honda's best friend, Akira Kurosawa. And obviously I, I think would have overshadowed it if, if Godzilla was anyone else's hands, but so many of the most popular uh, Japanese films are these historical treatments of the the kind of golden age of samurai, daimoyo, um, uh, emperors, and things like that. Uh, basically, looking back to before Japan opened up, before the rest of the world came to Japan, which is, you know, for better or worse, uh, somewhat nostalgic, um, insular in, in many ways. And I mean... The, the whole Western genre is very similar. Yeah. 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 Um, and, but like, even a consummate, like humble person as he was when he was talking about his work and being just like, when he was looking back on this film, mm. Ishiro Honda said, as strange as it may sound, I think the film probably succeeded because I didn't completely succeed as a director. The film represents only about 65% of what I wanted to achieve. Maybe if we had a little more time, money, freedom, we could have gotten 100%. Since we fell short, however, audiences could see that it wasn't a real story, that it wasn't like the war. And I'm I'm sitting here seeing this, what this else, passage. What else did after, he want to achieve? <laughs> I, I, I know. But he also was known for, I mean, being a, kind of a perfectionist in, in, in his expectations for his own work. And because uh, he often said similar sentiments but like i i could not watch that movie and think oh yeah they they didn't quite get it i mean there's very few wasted scenes or like seconds there's few wasted seconds in this movie which is yeah well amazing one one of the notes that you make was talking about how well this film was shot and i think and i agree like honda's direction of this film is I'm sorry. It's it's masterful. So you're watching a, a master find himself on film, it, and it's so crazy that he is overshadowed by Akira Kurosawa, who is also amazing director, one of the best directors to have ever lived, <laughs> to ever shot, uh, also pointed a also, camera, also mm-hmm. one of his best friends. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, they're like one of the three crows. They called them um, along with uh, another director in Toho's studio system. Um, it just it, it, it was always tickled me. They're like best buds. I you know I didn't know that before going into the biography, but w- one of my um, most uh, kind of edifying film experiences is when in uh, as a teenager I, I got to see Seven Samurai for the first time, and I was like, this is what they were doing in Japan when we had fixed cameras and you know very boring. Uh, films here in America, I mean, in my opinion, all the films that are known as classics here, the direction is not center stage. I feel like the director really pulls himself away, lets the actors and the story take center stage. Akira Kurosawa, his eye is in that film, and in the same way, you get Ashiro's point of view for this film, especially. <laughs> I don't know about all this, the sequels to Godzilla, but you are getting the director's eye. And it's just, I think the way directorial style kind of 
uh, came to be in Japan. Um, this film is amazingly shot. It moves along speedily. The scenes are interesting. He, uh, Shir- Shirahano was very um, kind of negative about he wasn't able to, to get the performances out of the actors that he wanted. But I think what they what is on the screen ends up great. Um, it's 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 wild to me because he, he's a, another line in this book where he says, it is my regret that I couldn't make a film that I would consider the greatest of my life. Each time I did my best. So for that, I have no regret. But when I see my films later, there's always a spot where I feel like I should have done this way or I should have stood up for myself against the company. I do regret that. Yeah. However, it is my definite pleasure, my, definitely my pleasure that I was able to make something that people can remember. I mean, I don't I don't see Toho's hands in this movie, especially. I don't know what he wasn't able to succeed at because... This for me, Godzilla 1954, is as important a film as Akira Kurosawa's Seven yeah. Samurai. And, and Rashomon, again, boy howdy, they're both great. Kurosawa felt the same way. And it's one of the reasons why Honda later in his life was brought aboard, brought aboard to help Kurosawa in some of his later films in, I think, the 70s and 80s. Yep. And it's just... I think everyone kind of knew that Honda never quite got the respect he deserved. And he also was this consummate professional. He was known for being so even keeled. Kurosawa himself said, you know, he was my best friend because he was the only person that could put up with me because he was such a patient person. (laughs) And I love that. Um, Now, when talking about this film, I... It's hard for me to like, I I don't even know where to start because I feel like we should start talking about the movie. We've given it a good little um, cliff notes. Uh, Again, you should go read Honda's biography. We will be referencing it many times for the next good while. (laughs) Well, Um, it's so funny to talk about like a general description of the film because it's one of those movies. If you're listening to this and haven't seen it, you already know kind of the plot. Um, probably just from how much it's been replicated in popular culture, in other movies. In its own franchise. Yeah, it's been redone a few times, for better or for worse. Um, But there are some things about this first film that I think don't get quite replicated mm -hmm. or or to the effect, like the opening of this film. And and this is why I I, want to give Honda so much credit, because there are purposeful choices made that... I don't think the film has as much power if you if they're not there. And the mm-hmm. opening footstomps and roars in the I know that sounds like a like a simple phrase, but in in the opening film, the opening of the film, it's it's pitch black. You you don't see anything. It's just some of the text, and then you hear the footstomps, and they are these very severe footstomps. It's not this what would become the 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 kind of almost uh, Universal Studios kind of you know oh the monsters coming they're they're threatening and the and the roars are also mm-hmm. the, the same way there's a, a there's a seriousness that insinuates that this movie that you're about to see is going to take you somewhere and you know so many of the cast and crew weren't sold on the film and thought including the director honda it wasn't going to be successful until Akira Ikafube or Ifakube's <laughs> score came in. 
because oh, with so the good. score, it's so good. It's so with the good. Score came those specs. He was in charge of Godzilla's roar, some of the effects for the the military, and those scenes that uh, Superaya created. I think do not hold up unless you have a complete soundscape around them. They can look like someone in a suit walking around, but what you get transported, and it's one of the things of Kaiju Asia that um, works so well when everything is in harmony with uh, one another. And obviously, Akari uh, Ifukube's uh, musical uh, score for this film sound effects are amazing. Well, not only not only they're amazing, they there are they're iconic moments in cinema history. They are used throughout this franchise. They are used in the American Godzilla movies that Legendary has been doing. Bear McCreary used it for his King of the Monsters score. Yep. It's I mean, these these moments, these these flourishes of music are not just they're not just iconic. They are they're they're pieces of cinema in and of itself. Yeah, the Godzilla's roar. Here's a factoid for everyone that doesn't know: Ifukube created by getting a leather glove, coating it in resin, mm-hmm. uh, rubbing resin all over it, and rubbing it across strings of a contrabass. Um, and apparently, his footsteps were created uh, striking an amplifier box and just recording the sound. And it's those kind of things that you know it it sounds unearthly. Um, it sounds amazing, and, and- it transports you. I think that that that's a perfect way of putting it. It does sound unearthly. It doesn't just sound like, oh, here comes the monster. It's like it it legit sounds like a rumbling in the distance that you you don't know what that is. And it's because out of necessity because they tried to make it King Kong's uh, roar by mixing a bunch of animals that already exist together to create something which is um, didn't work out for what they were going for. So it it caused them to think outside the box and, and, and do that. Before we, we pop into more of the film, I, you mentioned something about how there's a lot of people who didn't think this movie was uh, going to succeed. And there's a story that I love that on the first day of filming, Honda addressed his the, the crew of 30 to read the script oh, yeah. and leave, leave the project if they did not feel convinced, wanting to only work with those who had confidence in him and the film. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah, there was, uh, I mean, a lot of doubt, but it was... Um... And there was just so much pressure on him to to succeed uh, in in this venture because I mean if it hadn't Toho would be out a lot of money they put a, a lot into this project it's I mean for many years I think it was the most special effects heavy uh, film Japan had uh, ever created um, so they they had a lot to lose they had a lot writing on it. It was very much the same with, uh, like, uh, as a modern example, New Line Cinema with Lord of the Rings. I mean, they spent yeah. a lot because they filmed it back to back to back. They spent $400 million mm-hmm. in the late 90s on a project that could have ended that studio. And instead, it became a billion dollar franchise. Yeah, it, it requires a good deal of faith in your director. And surprisingly, I mean, sure, Honda had made some some very popular films. But obviously nothing like Godzilla. Very similar to the way that uh, Miriam C. Cooper started with filming kind of like documentary footage. Uh, Akira Honda, or Oshiro Honda was was known for uh, first producing educational films. And um, one of his first, I would say, hits was... Um, 
a fictional story, but a a very realistic film about pearl divers um, from a, a a very small village in I think northern Japan. Um, something that would come back in this film as he would go back to the location that he, he used to shoot. Uh, well, I don't have my book open <laughs> in front of me, but I, I forget the the name of it. But I think it was nineteen forty nine. But it, it was. Uh, very similar because they used the actual pearl divers um, that lived there to, to shoot this film and, and tell this fictional story uh, the same way at the end of this movie, the, the main character works for a salvage company, uh, a deep sea salvage company. And he would use those people to film the suits in the, the, the deep dive at the end of the movie, um, which is, I, I, I I found that fascinating looking yeah. <laughs> that up that uh, and I, I wonder if that was just part of the process. He knew he was going to use that for the climax. And so uh, suddenly our, our main character, Hidato? No, is that it? Yes. Uh, played by uh, Akira Takarada uh, works for the, the Savage Salvage Company. Didn't really understand what he did because I don't think we see him. Uh, we get to see him in the beginning of the movie getting a phone call that a ship has gone down and he's got to go like look for it. But I don't know if we get to see him until the end of the movie, like suited up. Uh, yes. Cause I mean, so let, let's, let's go through a little bit of, of the plot. Yeah. It I'm a, I'm a little confused because we see a similar ship to the lucky dragon. Number five, um, a, a fishing vessel and there's a huge light under the water and they're suddenly all hurt or dying uh, from, from this bright flash. And originally I thought that was a underwater atomic bomb going off, but I think the movie leaves it questionable if that's what happened or if that's just Godzilla um, who's already been waking up from, from another bomb who's, who's hurt the ship. Yeah. So, so the, as, as viewers, we are supposed to, to infer that this is something strange, it's something different. And yes, we are supposed to in, assume it's, it's the title creature mm-hmm. but i i also love that it's being blamed by an ancient sea creature from odo tradition yeah I, I i like that there's a traditional folklore aspect to this and as a result because when he is first seen 22 minutes into the film he gets his name due to the odo tradition and so mm-hmm. i i like that because what the the uh one of the older the elders in in the odo village is like this is this is Godzilla. He's come back. He this he's going to you know punish us for mm-hmm. the I guess the way we've been living. Um, and I, I did like that aspect. They never quite define what Godzilla was, other than kind of an ancient sea creature boogeyman. And Godzilla he fits the bill. <laughs> yeah, the the next time we kind of see him, it's black as night. Uh, a huge storm has blown in and I mean, he's kind of like a force of nature, but we see a house destroyed. Um, Oh yeah. He comes in with, I mean, and it's so funny because I remember people complaining in some of the MonsterVerse movies that, Oh, well you always see Godzilla when it's pouring down rain in these movies. (laughs) And uh, it's hard to see, like thinking that's, that's distinctly an American remake problem. And that's something that's been happening in the franchise for a very, very long time when they're trying to be taken more seriously. Yeah. Obviously, later in the Showa era, where it's a little more friendly and fun, you see the monsters in the bread of day. They're just you, they're slapping each other. 
you see uh, Godzilla above the mountain on Odo Island for like 10 seconds mm-hmm. originally. It is very, very short amount of time. And then you see some footprints on the beach when they go and they see he's gone into the ocean. But that original scene, very short. I think they cut out a bit where uh, they showed Godzilla like um, munching on a cow, one of the village's cows. Uh, for you know, it was self censored, I think, by Toho for whatever reason. I, I think that's a, a solid move. Um, well, it's so funny, but but it's it's interesting because they show these cows like down by the beach earlier when uh, Dr. Yamani and um, his, his uh, daughter um, get to the the island. Um, but yeah, the the rest of of this film kind of plays out very similar to what you expect. You know, one thing that I, I never really noticed what, to go back before they move to the island is Dr. Sarazawa seeing them off on the dock. It's the introduction of his character and he has no lines. They don't really explain yeah, it's yeah, it is interesting much. that he either seems to know what's going on, or maybe he has an unsaid thing where I might try to solve this problem. Because so Godzilla becomes this this known thing. And I, mm-hmm. I love that there was an absolute debate on whether or not we're going to talk about this to the public. Yeah. And because that that to me echoes what would absolutely happen, although I feel like in this country it might go the other way. Um, and so we're introduced to this character, uh Sarazawa, who has been developing this piece of technology that he calls the oxen destroyer. And this, this is where we're introduced to the, the kind of love triangle because um, you have Amiko who volunteers to help one of the reporters try to go get a, um, an exclusive with Sarazawa because they've, they've heard that he's developing some, some kind of weapon in uh concordance with german scientists I, I it's a throwaway line but they talk about him uh having studied with them and i think that some people see that as maybe he was studying that before the war so it's like a tie to like weaponry developed during world war well II. it's also by doing that it's not just that but there is a fascination that that comes up a lot in the production of these films with frankenstein <laughs> yeah. And and the parallels between Sarazawa and Dr. Frankenstein are very similar. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that was also possibly one of the things they were trying to do. Now, we are we are kind of imp- not flat out told, but heavily implied that Sarazawa and, Mik- and Amiko have a past. He is clearly in love with her and she does not feel the same way. She repeatedly says, even to Agata, um, who was uh, head of toe. Um, but he's referred yeah. to as Agata in, in the film. Yes. That's why I was like, why does he say his? So here. Yeah. Uh, um, it, it, it's different. Um, but I've always seen him as a brother and, and mm-hmm. he doesn't feel threatened by Sarazawa's presence. So I like that. There's no real, um, I guess, romantic tension in, in that, that there's no love so triangle per se. She's promised to um, Sarazawa by her father, Dr. Yamane, but I don't think, that that arranged uh, marriage was finalized yet. I think it was like, okay, when you are ready for it, like this is who you're going to marry. But obviously they were not in a romantic relationship. She was with uh, Agata. Um, and, you know, like many people in Japan. <laughs> Yamane were, did not care for him. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, well, like many uh, young people at that time, you know, she was trying to uh, buck tradition yeah. of, you know, going and you know, fall, uh, outrageous, falling in love with who she wants. <laughs> well, and Sarah Zawa clearly has some sort of feelings for her. And so she, he, yeah. in, in, I think, according to those feelings, he shows her what he's working on. And I don't, I don't, I don't understand his, his, his motives for that. Honestly, I, in, in part I, I later do, on, I, it feels I like do, he, he's like guilty about it because he's, well, he's definitely, he's definitely haunted by what he's created very much like Frankenstein. I mean, um, he's so serious about the information not getting out, but he does tell Imeko. Well, because people's like, emotional reactions to people make people do stupid things. Well, in, in, in small part, I mean, to me, it felt like he wanted other people to know for whatever reason. I mean, it's use possible. It or... I, I feel like that, that that might be what Honda's talking about when he's talking about how he didn't get to do everything he wanted to do. I, yeah. I bet there is a background for Zarazawa that he wanted to to, to so, flesh out some more. As, but I love as, the scene. That oh, this, yeah. This, oh, it's great. The scene that sets up the introduction of this ox destroyer feels straight out of an A24 film because of the way that the scratchy string music plays as she's watching this horror in front of her. Yeah, which and, we and don't see as the audience, obviously. Which is a masterstroke. Again, because I, that's why I didn't want to see Godzilla chomp on a cow. I think what you don't see and what you're told sometimes in these films is so much more effective. But this delivers the weight of this weapon and it introduces us to how haunted Sarazawa is by what he's created again mirroring creating something so powerful mm-hmm. that it could wipe out an entire swath of life on the poster for the movie um it talks about a giant monster and then a terrible weapon it the oxygen destroyer has second billing like in the tagline for this film it is as much a part i think of the movie you know plot wise especially as the giant monster itself well because the idea of killing godzilla is a a large part of this movie yeah mm-hmm. dr yamane is a hundred percent against it because he views godzilla as this very unique life form who has shown resistance to aging and radiation and yeah. we don't know anything about this creature how can we possibly take its life and so the the philosophical debates of which i don't even know if there's a right answer uh i mean there there might be some ethical right answers but it's they're so fascinating and how they're played out and the only reason i feel like sarazawa goes along with it is because he bears witness to the destruction that godzilla has done and for what it's worth he is very much uh, I mean, he's not a, a one-to-one director transplant in the movie, but Ashira Honda is very closely tied to Sarazawa's character. Mm. Um, even though, very interestingly, in the scene where he's he's get, uh, letting the boat go away from mainland Japan, he's dressed like Subaraya uh, with, with the 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 sunglasses and the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, He's not wearing that the rest of the movie, just in that one shot. And then <laughs> he wears it's 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 the joke of that kind of thing where it's like, I'm going to wear this clothing to be inconspicuous. And it's always the most conspicuous clothing. I think later on, he wears uh, a hat that a Shira Honda is very uh, famous uh, for wearing. Um, 
kind of a a, a, a cap that you'll you'll see him and we're in the 50s yeah. and 60s directing every single scene uh when they're on the ship at the end of the film um but yeah i mean both the Shira honda and sirizawa um were in the war you know what exactly they did was was left with, with a question mark in this film but afterwards he has a a great amount of weight on him about this weapon that he's developed that becomes a focal part point of the, the film. Uh, Godzilla, obviously a huge part of this movie, but like you said, so much of the early part of the film is just seeing his destruction. They talk about all these ships going down the, the salvage, the first salvage ship that goes out for the fishing vessel also is destroyed, right? Uh, yes. Uh, um, several, several, several vessels are destroyed, but, so I want to talk a little bit about the the kind of main stomp on on the city uh, when 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 Godzilla arrives in in the city because he, he he arrives with the severity of a a Category Five hurricane and a wartime bombing and I think it's yeah. so important that Honda did not film film this this sequence as fun. It's not filmed as a spectacle. There is a purposeful lack of whimsy and wonder. Mm-hmm. It's horrific and it's harrowing and it's freaking brilliant in how this scene is, is completely just mind-bogglingly monstrous. Yeah. And um, it, it, it is uh, preceded by a scene where <laughs> Yamane and Agata and, and Imiko are, are um, just sitting around kind of, the, the living room they're trying to explain what uh they want to do with their life and then they're just interrupted by those footsteps and in and raid sirens and they're just witnesses to this destruction um i think at one point they try and tell someone you know um it, it might get distracted by by lights so turn off the lights or it might come towards your lights oh yeah there's a whole scene where they just everyone cuts off their lights mm-hmm. and oh cuz i mean so on top of this, Godzilla is known for his atomic breath. And while I will forever stand the bright blue ray breath that he is known for, this more realistic emission of radiation is honestly extremely stunning. And unlike the cartoonish breath that we will see him have, it brings genuine death and destruction akin to that of a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. And all the shots of that damage are stark. The, the music eventually stops. And so you just hear the fire roaring and it's a quiet that invites reflection on what you're seeing. So you're seeing homes ablaze, terrified people relentlessly killed by destruction. And I think the most, like, I guess the, the, the toughest one for me, at least was seeing that mother huddled with her terrified child saying, we're going to join daddy. It's, the- it's, absolute darkest thing in this movie it's so haunting and it's one of the most brilliantly executed monster attacks in film history like it's um it's masterfully done yeah so this is the first time he steps foot and i mean there's so much special effects here besides the breath um besides the post colorization and light up of his dorsal fins uh you have him breathing the fire breath uh, atomic fire breath on the power towers, it, the power line towers melts down. It looks so real, so amazing. Yeah. And um, it, it was something, I mean, this had never been done before. Uh, Super Ryan, his team were making special effects 
for the first time. And I think those were made out of wax and preheated with the studio lights. And then you just hit them with some some directed like heat guns. or something. Uh, no, I think like heat guns right off stage to make them melt in front of the camera. Just genius. It looks it's, great. It's so good. And and I mean, um, Godzilla, you know, uh, the, the suitimation, which we, we haven't talked about, the suit itself looks great, um, mm-hmm. especially. But obviously, we got to talk about a super great deal about the miniatures uh, used in, in that scene. Um, they're 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 so painstakingly done and yeah everything looks real it's it's something that's been done in movies before i think for like natural disaster scenes and things like that but having them get scaled to monster size having you know two or three story buildings just crushed underfoot and all these buildings are not just exteriors. They like build floors in them. So like when they're knocked down, you can see that there's there's things inside. Uh, we will watch monster movies later on that don't take that extra step. And then you can tell that it's just like four walls. And like a piece oh, of I mean, we will watch movies in this franchise that don't take the extra <laughs> step. <laughs> yeah, well, it's expensive. It took a long time. I mean, as long as it took sheer honda to film all the actor scenes about three months it took longer for super Ryan's effects team to to make all the effects for the film well while we're talking about this i'm going through the the scene that you're talking about and one of my least favorite bits is uh some of the use of stop motion that they do in this film which i'll talk about from godzilla's tail to there's a, a fire truck that topples over and it's obviously a toy fire truck and it's I mean, it's a, it would be an extremely difficult shot for even Ray Harryhausen to do to show this vehicle turning in stop motion. But yeah, it, I mean, that one didn't really take me out that much. I was like, yeah, that, that's what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's it's so funny because everything else during the scene looks so, so amazing. The the cannons, the tanks that roll out eventually here just looks it looks so good. And it's one of those things where the black and white and the fact that it is at night uh, just kind of elevates it. The fire effects, <laughs> especially when we see Godzilla from afar walking through the entirety of, of Tokyo on fire, it just looks so good. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we, we could talk about <laughs> some of the effects like all day long, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a well it's <laughs> this is uh, so the way that people feel about 1933's King Kong is how I feel about Godzilla mm-hmm. it, and, and especially in how the special effects are done, because a lot of people cite the 33 special effects as being, you know, a masterstroke. And and, and I, I do see where they are coming from. Again, it's only my personal viewing. But for me, this this film, I mean, <laughs> I well, like you said, it blows out movies that will come in this series alone 10 years later. Like, obviously, yeah, and I, I mean, it's expensive, but they put so much into this first movie. They really, and, and the thing is, really is like, I, I feel like it's a film, it, especially for monster movie fans, that doesn't, I think, film aficionados love this film more than monster movie fans because this film has a decided lack of whimsy. This is more of a disaster horror film than anything else. Um, and there is people like monster movies for some of the fun, especially kaiju movies, because they are a blast. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I love this film does, I think what everything 
leading up to now hasn't quite done yet. And it just, uh, it's a movie that honestly leaves me speechless. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's, it's insane to me how, how powerful this film is because not only are you making an interesting speculative science fiction movie, but you were also making a brilliant commentary on, because a lot of people love to say, Oh, well, this is Godzilla represents the United States. And I don't think this movie is as simple as that. Like, yes, there is the reading that Godzilla represents the United States in some capacity in that it was someone who was considered a fearsome foe and then became kind of a tentative ally. But I feel like that's one, an easy read, but also not entirely accurate because the United States really isn't mentioned much at all. And it's more of man playing with a science that they can't really fathom or control. Well, and it's not, I, I don't think what Ashiro Honda had in his mind. No, I, I, I agree. I uh, there's also readings that Godzilla is a representative of the ancient emperors of of Japan because he destroys all of Tokyo, but leaves the imperial palace intact. He destroys the Diet Building, which is the new government of Japan. Oh, uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think it's just like what they were able to represent. You know, I mean, and that's the thing about reading screen. into some movies is there's always going to be wild reads and people are are welcome to them i mean if you ever watch the, I mean, the one on the shining it's it that documentary is wild it's crazy personally shira hondo as a young boy saw tokyo obliterated by um fire from a uh a massive earthquake that um that caused destruction across like 75 percent of the city was burnt down at that time he has seen destruction of Tokyo up close and personal multiple times and and part of it from a a force of nature and in many movies which is how Godzilla is treated it, it, Godzilla is not a thinking you know emotional creature he is a at least not this creature <laughs> i mean he's so large he doesn't realize there's like you know little people around him he just sees a giant radio tower and it's like, is this thing challenging me? Knock it down, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do fall into the, the Godzilla as a force of nature. And I think Honda is showing reverence to nature, but also showing when we play with it too much, this is what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's one thing to know the science of something, but when you when you tinker too much or create weapons of mass destruction, nature has a way of balancing that out. And that in this instance is Godzilla. I mean, it was a Japan legend is a creature that was here before, but because of the United States atomic testing horrifically burnt and perhaps that mutated and gave him the atomic ability. So it is a mix of traditional Japanese folklore monster and American uh, science experiment, well, you know, and it's, and it's one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm, people are always like uh, Godzilla is a purely Japanese creation and is, is, he's not, he's very much a mix of American influence and Japanese traditions. And he's an international thing. You know, he's, he's one of the first international stars. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that's what makes this, I mean, so beautiful is that the to me the hero of the story is someone who does not want to let this 
this chain of disaster continue. So he decides, yes, I will use the oxen destroyer to stop this creature because it is mm-hmm. the only way to stop, stop this wanton destruction. However, the buck stops here. All the information about the oxen destroyer dies when I do. And it is such an, a tragic. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about it because you've just named my favorite scene in the movie. And it's crazy to me that my favorite scene is not one with Godzilla in it, where there's you know, like the scene you're talking about, the, the, um, the end of the movie. There's so many great scenes. There's so many great technical scenes, but um, for me, this film does shine with some of its cast and its, its plot. And um, uh, Agata and Imiko go into Sarazawa's lab, try to convince me to use the oxygen destroyer uh, to save Tokyo. And then his reluctance and finally hearing the uh, school children's song of peace is, you know, what moves him. Uh, another original uh, song by Akira uh, Ifukube. Um, and he immediately goes and begins burning his notes. And you don't realize it the first time you see the film, but he's already made up his mind of what he's got to do at that point, which when you go back and watch it, it's it's just it's such a wreck. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's so sad that he's realized he's going to commit suicide to keep the secret of the oxygen destroyer from ever getting out. And this is important, not just from a story point of view, but from a political point of view as while under uh, U.S. scrutiny, while under um, occupation, Japanese cinema was not allowed to show suicide in that way, in a heroic way, which is a very sensitive subject in Japan, especially after World War II. So that restriction was only lifted three years, I think, before Godzilla came out. It's extremely powerful, and it's probably one of the you know, first depictions in film since before the war began that was able to to show something like that happen. Um, it gets me every time. Like when he starts burning those notes, you just know what's coming. And um, mm-hmm. we don't have this third act extreme climax. From here, we have a denouement of the, the rest of the film and using the oxygen destroyer and, and the the deep sea dive to, to Godzilla, you know, just resting. It looks like he's kind of like laying down. It does. For some reason I remember, and maybe I'm thinking of a, a, a future film that replicates it. I, for some reason, I remember there being like a Godzilla skeleton that pops up after the oxygen destroyer hits, mm-hmm. but I, I could be thinking of a different film. So they show a skeleton here, but then it evaporates as well um, soon after. Okay. But it doesn't come out of the water. It's, it's down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I remember the skeleton being a little bit more prominent and this one, the, the, especially the one I watching on HBO max. Um, it's just, yeah, it didn't feel as prominent as I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I think the human compliment of the the characters from Yamane to Sarazawa really work in this film. I think it shows Shira Honda's excellence in bringing those that story to bear. Uh, yeah, and stand out against these huge special effects scenes. Well, um, let's talk about uh, how you felt about it. Yeah, so I, I, I hinted there's some things that didn't work for me in the film, and why I'm not giving this a perfect score. I know 
that puppetry has a long tradition in, in tokusatsu from its emergence in traditional kabuki and uh, bunraku theater in Japan, puppet theater, especially uh, the bunraku. Um, but there is a puppet used in this Godzilla movie, and I think Godzilla reads again, that just looks so different from the suit uh, that is worn by the the various actors in in the uh, the Godzilla costume. Um, and we switch between them for short periods of time. It doesn't doesn't bother you too much, but some of the close ups uh, have Godzilla just looking very goofily, <laughs> the snaggletooth puppet straight at the camera. Um, one of them, the eyes are going in two different directions. It it, it bothers me. I really wish. I mean. I, Personally, I, I think, you know, what else could they have done? <laughs> you know, right. they, they really can't get the the range of motion out of the suit at this point in time. Um, and having half suits or, or different scale heads is a mainstay of the series after this. But this is one of the worst. This is one of the worst puppets um, in, in the film series. And they use it a lot, uh, along with, uh, like I mentioned, some of these stop motion elements. I mean, it's it's like maybe... A minute of the movie but compared to all the other special effects it it pulls me out a little bit um but like i said super ryan and his team were making so many of these effects for the first time um so it's a little, little jarring all the same and it's one of the few things of this film <laughs> holding it slightly back for me uh what about you what, what what elements work for you what don't work um I'm not gonna lie. I'm pretty simple. It's, everything works for me. <laughs> I, I, I I will agree on the the absolute the, the actual puppet. Uh, it's not my favorite Godzilla uh, suit. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even seeing it kind of in its own, because uh, it's been on display in different Toho museums and stuff. Um, it's it's not my favorite. And and there are goofier ones that I do that, that are more iconic that I do appreciate. Um, and honestly, prefer. But um, at the same time, because it's, it's black and white and it's often nighttime when he appears, I feel like it kind of shades him enough that the any issues I have with the actual suit are are so minor mm-hmm. and and negligible. So, yeah, there's there's not a whole lot that that doesn't work for me in this film. I think I they could have maybe if I were going to do anything is tighten up some of I think sometimes there are too many characters floating around. Mm-hmm. And I would have tightened that up just a tad, but even still, I think everyone's got a pretty important position to play. And I think in terms of the ensemble in, in delivering the emotional and philosophical aspects of this film, you kind of need all of them. So yeah, that's, that's where I am there. <laughs> yeah. Critics at the time, for the most part, extremely positive about Godzilla in Japan. Many praise the story, some the the themes, especially the special effects. But uh, as we said, Ashira Honda was extremely hard on himself and really only listened to the negative reviews for some reason. Yeah, because well, uh, uh, there are a lot of there were a good, good fair share of reviewers that for whatever reason did not accept science fiction with a purpose. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, and, I don't understand that. And <laughs> this, this is like why I was looking for a point. <laughs> yeah, this is why I was looking for other Japanese science fiction films uh, beforehand. And I know there was like a fantasy series about a submarine in the 1910s or 20s, but 
I, I couldn't find much. So I don't know where this attitude came from. I mean, maybe it came from the idea of, especially like King Kong came to Japan. It's, it's the idea of it being, you know, pulpy fun, but even, I just don't accept the idea that any genre can't be taken seriously and have uh, themes that that speak upon the nature of of reality. I, I just I don't understand that. There was a, a later running theme with uh, Cher Honda, Subraya, some of the other producers at Toho that they would screen the films, the Godzilla films for themselves. And with each passing year, uh, he would also show these films to um and the scripts to Akira Kurosawa uh, each passing year, they would rate the films lower and lower and just get more and more harsh on themselves. Uh, so he, he rated Godzilla low and even until the eighties and nineties, when he passed away, he didn't think Godzilla was his best film. <laughs> like, and he's, he's famous for, for saying that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. In terms of of talking about this movie, and it's not exactly a review. And and if you buy the biography of Ashira Honda, uh, it's on the back of the hard hardcover. But it's also uh, by one of my favorite directors of all time. So I wanted to read uh, the effect that it had on this particular oh, person. Yeah, I first saw Godzilla in 1956 at the tender age of eight. Something about the film filled filled me with somber dread. Not the giant fire-breathing monster destroying Tokyo, but the overall tone, an underlying sadness, a sense of grief and horror. Japan is the only nation to suffer atomic bombs dropped on two of its cities, and Godzilla gave powerful expression to this emotional ambiance disguised as a giant monster movie. The director of this seminal motion picture was Ashiro Honda, the creator of an astonishing output of science fiction and horror films from Toho Studios and one of my personal cinematic gods. And that is by John Carpenter, mm-hmm. who is a in his own right a master of science fiction and horror, oh, easily. And um, like, and also there's a forward by Martin Scorsese. Like other other great film directors look at Honda with such reverence, and I don't know if it's just humility or he legitimately just couldn't see past you know not being able to do everything he wanted to do. Yeah, but. I mean, th- this movie is a masterpiece. Uh, I-, I can't even go into like my three times. This movie is 10, 10, 10 for me. Like, <laughs> that's that's I, easy enough. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie is not only one of the best monster movies or one of the best science fiction movies. I think this yeah. is one of the best films, period. And it's it's an absolute masterpiece. I, I don't flaw it for anything. I think <laughs> that this is just an absolute work of art. And... Like, I will say, this has a lot in common with a lot of great first horror films, especially Mm -hmm. from like the 70s and 80s, like Halloween or A Nightmare on Elm Street, where you have one film that is genuinely doing one thing, but sequels come along and that point slowly goes away and that Mm -hmm. power slowly goes away. And it happened with Godzilla first. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, so... King, (laughs) the fun factor still pops up though. So, oh yeah, Uh, King Kong is really about the spectacle. But I think John Carpenter's quote there about the the dread, you know, it's something I don't think existed in films before. You've got the macabre horror of you know the um, 
uh, uh, Dracula and those kind of films, but this is on another level. And it's why this podcast was made to talk about specifically Kaiju films, uh, serious and later on, uh, a, a little sillier, but for the legacy of Godzilla, I mean, come on, it's, it's one of the most, uh, culturally impactful films of all time. After this, there are only 31 other movies <laughs> made by Toho starring Godzilla, which is only, <laughs> only 31 other films, uh, 32 in total. That's five more than James Bond at this point of our recording. I think it might be four more after this comes out in uh, in October. Eight more than the Marvel MCU at this point. And if you include the American movies, we're talking 36 Godzilla movies in total, um, mm-hmm. not including TV shows, uh, animated films, um, and then hundreds Anim- of if and not, anime. Yeah. And anime, uh, hundreds of homages and appearances and other media. There's comic books for decades. And I mean, this is this is a, a cultural icon, I, I think, on par easily with uh superman batman spider-man oh, yeah this is this is a worldwide icon that everyone recognizes and i mean there's a reason for it and i mean i, I can't say a whole lot more uh i mean i can but i'm i'm not going to say a whole lot more mm-hmm. other than you know 10 10 10 this week was 10 for me <laughs> Well, I, I will speed up our rating uh, process because this is a long episode already, but um, we look at per- our personal enjoyment as the first 10 miles gave technical and aesthetic elements, the second and the emotional and evocative responses. This generates as a piece of art within the Kaiju genre. My score is very similar. It's 10, nine, 10. I am indeed dinging it just on the technical effects because Monster. You're Be- on par with Godzilla himself. Because, I mean, this movie deserved more time to to get those elements right. Um, and, you know, I wish I wish it had it. Um, obviously, though, this is the start uh, of not only an amazing directorial career uh, for for more monster movies, but uh, the uh, Subaraya was basically a co-director. He made about 40 percent of this film without Honda like ever seeing the footage until you know it was presented he he's amazing and will perfect the art of you know what is known as tokusatsu in Japan you know special effects movies and tv shows as he continues on he's pretty young here <laughs> at the the start of of uh, of Godzilla and in 10 years time would would be making his own production studio and uh, and really moving from there like I said, my my original rating for this film was fairly low because I had I saw the American version as a kid, and but watching it again, I I am trying to be as objective as I can and say, uh, I mean, this is as close to a masterpiece as I think we're gonna see anytime soon on this podcast. I mean, this will definitely this this might be the only ten out of ten on the show I, I don't know i don't know i mean it definitely won't be my only 10 out of 10 because there are plenty of movies in the in this particular franchise too that i think are our masterpieces but i don't know if patrick will be as enthusiastic as i am so i oh. can i can safely say this might be the only 10 out of 10 we see on the show i mean i think it's it's 
it's amazing. There are more amazing Godzilla movies out there for me as well. I mean, oh, not, 100%. not just other kaiju film, but it's it's up there. So our final podcast score, uh, averaging together our, our 10 and our technically 9.66 repeating, uh, it, Kaiju Vicious History's rating is 10 out of 10. Makes sense, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> if you look back when we're done with this podcast and look at the top 10 rated films, obviously Godzilla 1954 is going to be on there. And obviously it's one that you need to watch. Yeah. Whenever someone asks me for my like top 10 Godzilla movies or top five, I always put the asterisks. Okay. But I'm not including the first one because you should go and see that regardless. Yeah. But- it's, it's, it's hard because it's like, well, it should be on every single person's list, but it's kind of like, a gimme. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's it's like if I mean, this is much more subjective and probably some people are like, eh. but like if I were to ask you, like, what's your favorite Michael Jackson album? But you can't say thriller. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So go see this movie if you haven't and definitely watch the Japanese version of it. We're going to talk in the future about oh, Americanization of, of uh, Godzilla movies. But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about that. Cause I don't think I've seen that version since I was a child yeah. um, of, of that specific film, but that's a little ways off. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. So be sure to follow us on at Kaiju versus history on Twitter. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, or Kaiju facts at kaiju versus history at gmail.com and go to kaiju versus history.com to get ready for the next installment of our march to the annals of monster movie mayhem thank you patrick and mm. our fellow listeners we will catch you next time when just like in the 1933 film a company couldn't let a masterpiece go without squeezing every last drop out of it so <laughs> that's right it's time for another hastily thrown together sequel in less than a year so tune in next week for History versus Godzilla Raids again. 